Indeed, there is power in the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins and take away the sins of the world. That is the one of whom we have gathered to worship this morning. And we want to go to his Father and our Heavenly Father in prayer this morning once more. Will you join with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you as we are dependent upon you. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. So, Lord, we ask this morning for you to be at work. Father, we ask you to be at work in our dear sister Joan. Lord, we pray, Lord, that uh, this procedure tomorrow will solve answers in, in her ongoing struggle with uh, dizziness and, and weakness. And, God, we pray that you would be with her. Be with Archie and, and Cheryl and, and the rest of the family, Lord, as they await, Lord, and, and have to be distanced from Joan in, in the hospital, Lord, with COVID ongoing. So, Father, be with them through this. Give them a good rest tonight, uh, trusting in you. Lord, help them in the midst of, of anxiety and different things that they may battle with. Lord, know that Joan is in your hands, and Lord, that we can find comfort and strength in that. God, we also want to pray for other local churches that are gathered this morning. And, and just this morning, want to go back and, and pray as we often do for Matt Robbins and, and Marshall Creek Baptist Church. Lord, uh, I thank you for this dear brother. I thank you for uh, his heart to honor and glorify you. And just pray, Lord, that you will continue to use him mightily. Lord, uh, we, we are thankful that he was uh, once a, a part of our church, but is now uh, sent out to serve another body of Christ. And God, we just thank you for that opportunity to, to uh, be part of, of uh, partnering with Matt in his labors to make much of your name there. So, Father, we pray, Lord, as he preaches this morning, Lord, that you would uh, be with him to do that task. Uh, Lord, may you be uh, build up your church there, and Lord, see many to uh, further deepen their love for you, as well as new people come to faith in you. God, we also want to pray for those around the world. This morning, we want to pray for the Hungarians there in Hungary. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, for a people uh, with a, a heavy Catholic background. Lord, uh, they, they believe in Jesus, but only in coming to him through works. God, we pray for our IMB personnel that is working in the region of Hungary, Lord, that they would be faithful to share that it is by faith and faith alone, in Christ alone, that salvation has come. No matter of works or efforts or means will earn salvation. It is only through that faith. So, Father, Lord, we pray that many there in Hungary who are trusting in a works-based salvation would see uh, the the idolatry and, and the danger and the fact that that is not Christianity at all. It is a mock of Christianity. The Christian faith is that of faith in Jesus, wholly leaning on Jesus' name and trusting in his blood alone. So Lord, help our brothers and sisters make that known there in Hungary. Help the people to repent of their sin and come to Jesus alone for salvation. And God, we also want to pray this morning for the families that are uh, reflected on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 yesterday, or the families of those who lost loved ones, Lord, we pray that you would be with them even now as they continue to remember and reflect on what happened 20 years ago yesterday. Comfort them, be with them, help turn their hearts to a hope that is found in Jesus. 
God, Lord, even as we as a nation reflect upon this, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, a, a revival, a, a sense of seeing our need of Jesus. Do the work as only you can, O oh God. Make your name known and make hearts tremble and come and bow before you. Lord, would you do this work as only you can? Lord, and we ask this morning as we turn to the preaching and teaching of your word to join in that work. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our own hearts, humbling ourselves before you and coming to rest more in the power of Jesus and what we have in him. God, will you move even now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you've ever been a runner, you know that running long distance is a hard task. It's not one you can go out and, and exert yourself with full steam ahead right off the bat. If you run a marathon like you do a sprint, you're not going to make it. You're not going to endure. To run a marathon, you have to start slow and steady. You have to work on being able to finish the race. A sprint's easy. You can go out and, and push yourself for 100 yards in, in sprinting because then you know when you reach the end, it's done. But for a marathon, you're going miles upon miles. Even just yesterday, saw a, a former church member uh, and friend from up in the Chicago area is going to be running a triathlon today. I think it's 26 or 13 miles or something like that. Running that much distance, you have to pace yourself. You have to endure. You have to keep your eyes on the end goal or you won't make it. While we're not talking about a race per se this morning, we are talking about the race of faith. A faith that is, has to be fought for. A faith that is often a struggle to keep and maintain throughout the Christian life. And that's what we're going to see as we jump back into Mark this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn to, to Mark 9, whether uh, physical copy, digital copy, or the Pew Bible there in front of you. Go ahead and open up to Mark 9. This is uh, what we do each and every Sunday. We, we come and, and open up the Bible, uh, look at, at a particular passage, typically what we've where we've left off the previous week. Uh, you're coming to us at a, a weird time. Uh, we were doing Mark back in the spring uh, and stopped right before Memorial Day. And over the summer, we worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes and just last week looked at Psalm 67. So this morning, you're picking up uh, midway through our journey in the Gospel of Mark. But to help you get familiar and others catch up where we were, in the Gospel of Mark, it is one of the fastest moving, or it is the fastest moving of the four Gospels. Mark is uh, brief in so many different ways as he gives his Gospel account. Mark did not, I, was not the eyewitness of these things. He's taken what he's learned from Peter and telling them uh, so the church may have accounts uh, of what this has happened. So, so really, in one sense, the gospel of Mark is discipleship going to the second generation. It, it's gone from Peter to Mark, and now from Mark to its readers today, including us. So this is playing out of this discipleship thing that Mark is making such a huge emphasis of. Mark is one of those gospels that it really lays out what is a disciple of Jesus. 
And that's really where we're going to focus on this second half of Mark. In the first half of Mark, it was Jesus's journey, much of his dealings with the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the whole of Israel. As we move into Mark 9 through uh, part of, of 16, uh, just a, a quick FYI, we are not going to cover that part in the Bible that says some manuscripts add. Just Get that right out there right now. We're, we're, I will briefly highlight it in our last Sunday in Mark, but we are not going to look at that section because it, it is not in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, but in this section of 9 through 16, 8, we're going to see Jesus interacting with his disciples more closely and more pointedly, showing them what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's where we pick up this morning. Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ and then quickly was told, get behind me, Satan, as he doubted Jesus in telling of his first telling of the resurrection and death that was coming. So that's where we pick up here in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Follow with me. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great cloud, a crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water, to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. If I have wrestled and studied this text correctly, the main point of the text, and therefore the main point in the sermon is this. The battle for faith is often challenging Christian. Yet Christ is there to help us to fight for faith as he points us more to himself. The battle for faith is often challenging Christian. Yet Christ is there to help us to fight for faith as he points us more to himself. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, the fight for faith in waiting for future glory. The fight for faith in waiting for future glory. Point number two, the fight for faith in the midst of present sufferings. The fight for faith in the midst of present sufferings. And point number three, the fight for faith in the need for constant dependence. The fight for faith in the need for constant dependence. Let's look at point number one, the fight for faith in waiting for future glory. The fight for faith is hard. It's not as easy as we often like to make it sound. We like to say, oh, I'm doing good in my faith. I'm doing well or okay. Okay is not good enough. We need to wake up and realize we have a battle as we fight for faith. Things want to come against us. They want to challenge. They want to cause us to doubt in the faith. And that's why we must battle. Hardships will come. Sufferings will come. Moments of doubt will come for every Christian. We must fight for faith. And others must fight for faith for the first time. As Peter and the others struggled with Jesus telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. But I'm going to rise again. They immediately doubted. Peter said, far be it. Far be it from this happening. And what was told of Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So to help him and the other disciples in this, there in 9-1, this is actually part of that scene where Jesus is with them in Peter's confession, but we, we punted it till this time. So let's look here at 9-1. To help in the fight for faith, Jesus tells the disciples, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, some, as they look at this verse of this, who is this some standing here who will see the kingdom come in power? Some take it in what immediately follows in 9-2, being that of John and James and Peter going with Jesus up to the mount to see the transfiguration. 
While that's part of it, I don't think that's the fullness of the power that Jesus is telling them that they are going to see come upon them. Because in, in what follows here is not only the transfiguration, but a telling that Judas is the one who's going to deny Jesus. It tells them that uh, also back in, in verse 36 of chapter 8, it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So everything's running towards the cross already. Things are moving quickly to the cross where Jesus will lay down his life as a sacrifice. So as he's telling this, he's saying, some, in other words, 11 of you are going to see this kingdom come with power. Judas isn't because he's going to choose the world and money over me. He's going to deny me and hand me over to the Jews. We see this play out over and over again in uh, Mark 9, 30 through 32, which we'll look at next week. Jesus again tells of this coming uh, death and resurrection. In Mark 14, 10 through 11, we see Judas uh, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. But more importantly, in Acts 1, 6 through 9 is where this power is made clear as coming. In Acts 1, 6 through 9, as Jesus is preparing to ascend, giving his disciples the last marching orders, here's what he says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That power, the power that those some are going to see, is the power that comes when the Holy Spirit falls upon them as flames of fire, and they begin speaking that of other tongues, so that the nations gathered in Israel that day could hear the gospel. That power comes in the sending of the Holy Spirit through the Son ascending to the Father. That power has come and has already been seen. This isn't talking about seeing the kingdom of God come and the return of Christ. This is about the kingdom of God being at work now in this power. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that as we battle for faith, we are battling not in our own strength, but the power of the Holy Spirit that has come upon us, dwelling within every member, every Christian. This power is ours. But we must battle for faith as we remember this is ours. It's going to be a struggle. So much so is why we see the transfiguration. It says here in verse 2 of Mark 9, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So he, he's told us of this coming power. Again, they don't see it just yet, but he takes three with him uh, of Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples. Brothers and sisters, as, as we do discipleship, just a side note, I didn't even think of this until right now. As we do discipleship, sometimes it's going to be bigger groups, but sometimes it's getting very close and intentional with just a few select people. Make disciples this way. 
two groups of 12 plus, but pour in specifically to a few individuals in different ways, more so. This is a model of discipleship for us. But anyways, getting back before I get carried away, us seeing here, Jesus takes these three and they see him transfigured. Think of the word metamorphosis from seventh grade science. As you hear the word metamorphosis, it's a change, a transforming. Jesus' figure is transformed in his ascension on the mountain. He's changed to be purely white, so much so that no one can bleach it. Now, I worked in college athletics. I told you a few weeks ago, my, my job description in college athletics was I was a superstar in washing jock straps and sport brawls because all I did was laundry for all these athletic teams in college athletics. Some 300, 400 athletes I had laundry responsibilities for. I could bleach with all, all the best in getting grass stains out of football pants and grass and dirt stains out of softball uniforms. No one stood a chance against them. But not even I could turn Jesus' clothes as white and impure as was in this transfiguration. A man walking in the desert, nothing but dust, clings to white clothes like crazy. You think if you wear white, some of you have white on today, and what happens to that white garment? It quickly gets stained. It quickly gets messed up. It's no longer pure. But Jesus' garments transform into being pure white. But this isn't the only place we see this language. In Revelation 7, 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with pow branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here in Revelation, it's telling us, pointing us to Jesus, and before him, there's going to be those from every tribe and nation, like we looked at last week in, in Psalm 67. All of these are going to be for Jesus, and there he's going to be in his purest white, just as he's transfigured to here on the mountain. Jesus is showing a glimpse of future glory that's coming, but it must wait. It's not yet. The disciples are, are getting to see this as a means of helping them in the battle for faith, helping them to see what is to come, but it's not yet. And even in the midst of it, as they're being taught to wait, they miss the point. They struggle in battle for faith. Watch, look at what happens there in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the human author inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy called the Torah, the law. He wrote these five books to give to the people of Israel to identify who God is and what it meant to walk with him. So Moses is the great prophet, and it was told one greater than Moses is coming. And then Elijah, the prophet who, who countered the Baal priest and prophets in his day, 
challenging them. Let's build a, a fire. You call out to your gods. There's 400 plus of you. You call out to your gods and see what happens. Nothing happens. Elijah has a fire built, and then he says, pour on water upon water upon it, which makes fire, if you've never played with fire, hard to light. Don't go home and play with fire, by the way. But it makes it hard to light wet lumber. And yet, Elijah calls down God, and God lights it on fire. So both prominent people who have stood against that of false worship and idolatry, calling people to follow God as their king, are here with Jesus. But what is missed is that they go looking to the three of these equally. Peter says, let me go and, and build, make three tents, for one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. They missed the point Moses was the great forerunner in giving us the law, but Moses is not the end. Moses does not remain. Moses died and didn't even enter the promised land. Moses was a faithful servant of God, but he's not the hero. Elijah, as great of a servant as he was, he was called up in a whirlwind to be with God for all eternity. But Elijah didn't remain it's not Elijah's spirit that is sent to dwell in us and on us. Yes, it comes in John the Baptist, which we'll talk about in our second point. But it's not either one of these that is permanent and where the emphasis is meant to be. So much so, though, Peter, in his fear, puts his eyes on the wrong thing. He tries to give equal value to that of Moses and Elijah, just as with Jesus. He took his eyes off Jesus, the one who our faith is all about. Brothers and sisters, when we have to fight for fear, part of the battle is remembering what is the main thing. Remembering where the attention is meant to be upon. There's temptation for us to begin to look to other things and, and take our eyes off Jesus. We struggle with this as we fight for fear. We miss that Jesus is the prominent hero of the whole entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, there is but one hero, and it's Jesus. So we fail this in our Bible readings when we have our own call. Fear causes Peter to, to put this equal honor on all three of these, and yet it's Jesus alone who will dwell with us. But we miss this too in our day and time. We miss the point and begin to look in the wrong places and the wrong people and the wrong means for salvation. We begin putting emphasis where it should not be. One of the main areas that the church is currently struggling with and really has for over a decade or more is this idea of being relevant. The idea of we need motivational speakers, we need uh, to, to relate to the world just like they are in order to win people to Jesus. But the problem with this idea of relativism is it takes its eyes off the cross. It takes its eyes off Jesus. And therefore, we miss the point. But we're so fearful and trembling, just like Peter made that, that statement, let me make three tents for you. We're like, we're, we're going to lose the culture that's already changing if, if we don't catch up with the times and the Joneses. 
Christianity isn't about keeping up with the times and the Joneses. Christianity is about the truth of Jesus Christ, the center of all salvation, who came and laid down his life on a cross so that we could live. It's Jesus our eyes must be set on. It's Jesus who we must remember laid down his life as a sacrifice so that we could have life in the first place. If we take our eyes off Jesus and start putting it significantly in other places, then we're not going to be carrying out the faithful task. Christ has called us to take up our crosses, to follow him. He's called us to teach the things he taught and teach them to others. And it's this Jesus we're called to follow and to listen to. Our attempt at pursuing and keeping up with culture will be vanity unless we keep our eyes on Jesus. No matter of relativism, no matter uh, of doing all the catchy things the world likes is going to win people to Christ. The same gospel that was proclaimed 2,000 years ago is still being proclaimed today. And it is this gospel and this gospel alone that saves. But we must point to Jesus. We must go deeper in our theology. We must go deeper in understanding the depth of our sin and our desperate need of Jesus. We must go deeper in understanding the ways in which Christ has brought us blessing and salvation, the way that Christ has brought us life and given it to us abundantly. We don't win the culture by giving in to the cultural means. We win the culture by going deeper into Jesus, by keeping our eyes on him instead of allowing fear to cause us to do what the world was or shift to the wrong place. Peter had good intentions by all means and trying to build three tents, but he forgets that Elijah and Moses were but forerunners. The attention was to be on the Messiah King who would remain with his people for all eternity. Therefore, let us listen to this son. Look at verse seven and eight with me. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah, in the midst of this cloud appearing and speaking to them, they're gone. They leave. Just as fast as they came onto the scene, they're gone. Jesus stays. Jesus, the one who had already shown a picture of his glory, stays. He doesn't go on to glory. He stays because his mission is not done. He's headed to the cross, the cross in which he will lay down his life for and win our salvation through. Jesus stays. And therefore, it is this Jesus who we are to listen to and obey as God the Father speaks could you imagine being on that mountain as Peter and James and John were, and God comes over in cloud form and speaks, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Waking them up, causing them to tremble even more. They thought they were afraid before at seeing the transfiguration of Jesus. Imagine God speaking out of that cloud, telling them, listen to Jesus. Stop trying to do things your own ways. Stop trying to give a quick answer. Sometimes the most faithful thing we can do in our battle for faith is slow down and listen. 
Listen to that of the words of Scripture. Listen to how do we rightly apply these in our day and time. The battle for faith is won as we listen to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Him, awaiting that future glory. Because if the midst of our waiting, we lose sight of Jesus, we are going to go astray. The battle of faith must be kept in keeping its eye on Jesus. So Christian, keep your eye on Jesus. Don't take it off of him or we will drift away. Just as the Hebrews warns about in Hebrews 2, let us keep our eyes on Jesus. But it's not only battling for faith and keeping our eyes on Jesus as we await future glory. In point number two, we see the fight for faith in the midst of present sufferings. So now there in verse nine, it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So Jesus has shown these three this in, in close proximity with him, what is to, to come. But they're told, keep silent for now. When I rise, you can tell this. That's why it's written in Mark's gospel, because now they can tell it. But they weren't able to tell until that day because Jesus was giving them a glimpse of what was to come. And, and that kind of works in with that first point of awaiting that future glory. But look what happens, though, as they're coming down. He said, so they kept the matter to themselves, there in verse 10, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, this seems like an innocent question. Why must first Elijah come? But at the heart of it, they're still questioning, they're still doubting that Jesus is going to die and rise from the grave. Jesus has already told them this will happen once, and he's going to tell them two other times, and they're still not going to get it each time. They still don't get it. They want to escape suffering for the Messiah. They think he's going to come in and just conquer like a, a rebel king, bulldozing all the nationalities there in Israel and give the kingdom and the land back to Israel in its ethnicity. But that's not what Jesus has come to do. That's not how he's chosen to come and to save the world. He's come to lay down his life. The cross is essential to our salvation. The cross is essential to Christianity. And without the cross, we don't have Christianity. There is no Christian faith without the cross. Suffering is inevitable. Jesus made this clear. And he does so even here in verse 12 as, as he drives it home. He says, And he said to them, Elijah does not come first, or does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Elijah did come first, and he points to exactly what happened. Now, in Mark's account, because of its brevity, we don't see this click with the disciples. But in Matthew's, we do. In Matthew 17, 13, it goes on to say, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, and we saw back in the early part of Mark, in Mark 1, came preaching a baptism of repentance, calling the people to turn from their sins and turn back to God. 
John the Baptist is the one who was beheaded by Herod because he had sexual relations and had married his brother Herodias, or brother's wife Herodias. And John was arrested and eventually killed and beheaded because he spoke against sin. They did to John the Baptist whatever they want. And it was this John the Baptist who had the spirit of Elijah who came upon him and dwelt in him in his life and ministry from the, the womb to the tomb and ministered through him. This Elijah did come. It came in John the Baptist. So this has already been fulfilled. And if they did this to Elijah, how much more it's saying, then how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? One of the clearest of these is in Isaiah 52 through 53, where we learn that Jesus is going to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Where he's going to be led like a lamb to slaughter. Jesus is going to suffer. And it's made clear all throughout the pages of the Bible. This is nothing new. The Messiah King is going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be the king who lays down his life for his people instead of his people having to lay down his life for them. Fight for faith must realize the cross and that Jesus has to go there. But more importantly, the cross is also a stumbling block for many today. Suffering is a stumbling block for many in their journey of faith. Currently, our neighbors across the street, one of the biggest stumbling blocks for them in coming to Jesus, they, Muslims have a great respect for Jesus. They think of him as a great prophet. One of the easiest ways to, to study the Bible with somebody of the Muslim faith is ask, do you want to read about Jesus or Isa? They'll do it. Mark is the gospel that was chosen by a dear brother in the Middle East to win Muslim after Muslim to the Christian faith, inviting them simply to read the Bible with them. And yet they can't get over the fact of the cross. They can't see how a worthy prophet would suffer and die. That's one of the greatest hindrances in winning them to faith is you have to deal with how a worthy servant could suffer in such a way. But more for us in this room, one of the battles is not that Christ had to suffer and die. I think most in this room would affirm that quickly. But it's the fact that we have to suffer with him, that we're called to follow him in taking up our own crosses as we follow the suffering king. The Christian faith is a call to suffer. It's a call to take up a cross and follow Jesus. The cross, the cruelest form of death and persecution and torment in the history of the world. Been nailed to a tree. Nails driven through those wrists. Nails driven through that feet. Your lungs just closing in on themselves, suffocating. The only way to be able to catch breath is to press up on those nails, to stretch out your breastplate, to be able to catch just a, a small breath of air. It was a cruel way to die. It's the way our Savior went, and this is the instrument He calls us to take up, to follow Him, to die to self. Brothers and sisters, there are some around the world, there are some throughout history who have 
gone and had to lay down their physical lives as martyrs. The disciples all but John did this. They laid down their lives and gladly went to their own deaths, proclaiming the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters throughout church history have had to do this. Others, even now in Afghanistan, are having to do this. In our context, we don't. But we're still called to suffer and follow Christ by dying to ourselves. The call to follow Christ is a call to die to self, to lay down our own interests, our own rights, for the sake of the King who went to the cross on our behalf. We think that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves, and yet the fact is we don't. God created us, He made us in His image. He gave us marching orders. We are His. We are not our own. Even how much more so those who are already in Christ, who have been bought from slavery and death and are owned by Christ. Christ didn't buy us so that we could call our own shots. He bought us to give us life so that we may follow Him and have eternal life. But the reality is, this is a stumbling block for many in the Christian faith. Because they think coming to Christ is a means to easy living, to comfort. And yet the call to follow Christ is one to take up a cross, to follow Jesus in suffering. But we must remember in that fight for faith of Christ and the fact he has already gone ahead of us. That he suffered and bled and died so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We can't fight for faith if we forget the cross, if we take our eyes off Jesus, and if we forget the call to suffering. But we must look to the cross and his nail-pierced hands and feet as the sign to encourage us to press onward because he has already done it. And our call is to follow him, to await for that future glory and be with him in paradise forever. Christian, press on in the midst of sufferings, in that fight for faith. But one last thing, and this will be much briefer. Our third and final point this morning, the fight for faith and the need for constant dependence. In verses 17 and 18, we see there in, in Mark 9, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he is the spirit that makes him mute. And what Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. They've come down the mountain. They've seen all this. They've had this conversation. And now crowds are gathered around the other nine disciples, wanting them to heal this boy who, who has this unclean spirit, who's been cast on the ground. Uh, even as Jesus asked the father, how long has this gone on? He says there at the end of 21, and he said from childhood. And in 22, it says, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So, so this has been going on, a, a great sickness and illness on this boy, uh, of this unclean spirit, this deaf and mute spirit. The disciples can't cast it out, though. But the first thing we see of the struggle for faith is here of the Father. Notice what he said there at the end of 22. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. But notice Jesus' response. And Jesus said to them, if you can, 
All things are possible for one who believes. One who believes all things are possible. But the, the stumbling block is the fact of unbelief. Now there might be some sitting here in this room this morning who are unbelieving in Jesus. Who have yet to make their faith or to declare faith in Jesus. And that's because of unbelief. And yet, Jesus, in the midst of that unbelief, is sitting here showing not only this Father, but even you sitting in this room who have yet to believe, I'm here. I'm inviting you. I'm going to help you in your unbelief. And what does he do? And when Jesus saw the crowd come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him, and he arose. Despite the man's unbelief, Jesus went ahead and healed the boy, showing I have power over all things. I have power over spirits. I have power over it all. Even this great spirit that has done all this tormenting to your son, I'm going to cast out. Unbeliever, friend, Jesus today is inviting you to see who he is. That he laid down his life for you on the cross so that you could have eternal life. He willingly gave it so that you could come and have faith in him. All you need to do is believe that he died and rose again. Believe that today. See your need of Jesus and be saved. Make that your faith. But for the rest of us who have already placed that faith in Christ, we don't get off that easy either. Many of us still continue to struggle with unbelief throughout the Christian life, and that's okay. But we need to see that Jesus is there to help us in the midst of it. Brothers and sisters, it's okay for us to wrestle with the hard questions of the Christian faith. What does it mean to take up a cross and die? What does it mean that I need to go and declare the gospel and make disciples of all nations? What does these things mean? How is it the fact that there's one God existing in three persons? It's okay to wrestle through these and struggle to grasp them. What it's not okay to do is just cast them aside and not ever wrestle with them. But as we do wrestle with them, as we struggle and have to fight for faith, knowing that Jesus, who did not leave us on that mountain of transfiguration so he could have it easy, he went on to suffer and die so that he could be with us by giving his spirit for all eternity. Christ does not forsake us. He is with us until the end. And therefore, as we battle our own unbelief, we need to remember Christ is with us that we are his, and he's not going to let us go. We need to remember that, though, as we help others who are struggling in their own unbelief by pointing them back to the cross, by pointing them back to Jesus, that he's there, present with them, that he loves them and will not give them up. We need to help others by helping confront their sin in the midst of that unbelief. We need to help others by pointing them to these truths and loving them well through it. Brothers and sisters, we're going to struggle with our own unbelief and so are others. 
Therefore, we need to help one another. This is the beauty of the local church. God has given us covenant to care for one another so that we can link arms and carry each other through the midst of those struggling unbeliefs. In the moments where we doubt and question, others can step in and say, I've got you. I'm walking with you. I'm going to help remind you of who Jesus is so that you can have faith as well. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is one of a long and hard race. We're going to face challenges. It's going to be hard to endure at times, but we need one another to keep shouting as the bystanders on a marathon, cheering one another on so that we all finish the race together. It's not about us and our individual Christianity. It is about the oneness. The Christian faith is about one people being bought by the death of Christ. We are all his bride and part of his body. Let's live in such a way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we pray that you will help us to fight for faith in these ways. Help us to have victory in Jesus by remembering what he's already done for us. God, will you strengthen us this day and help us to go glorifying your name and helping one another in the battle for faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.